Thank you, Michael, Sam, Wendy. God wants us to be in a place where uh, it is well with our soul and where we have that peace that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Well, I'm Gary Post. If you don't know me, I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, Mark uh, Crane, the senior pastor, and, and Laura Lee are away this weekend on a little break, uh, so I'll be teaching today. How many, how many of you have, uh, have talked with somebody who said in conversation with you that their view was that the Bible is largely irrelevant to today because it was written so many years ago after all, and, and so it doesn't really speak to where we are today. Has anybody had a... Had a conversation like that? Yeah, most of us have, right? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, uh, Proverbs, which I think is, I, I don't agree. I couldn't disagree more, as a matter of fact. I think the Bible's never been more relevant. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about a, a particular book in uh, Proverbs, that is, that I think is, uh, just speaks all kinds of practical wisdom into, into everyday life. And, and we're going to be talking about that and how to apply the uh, Scripture life. Solomon tells us about a, uh, a lot about how to live a, a life wisely. But before we begin, let's go to prayer, shall we? Dear Father, we, we thank you for this time today, and I thank you for these folks who have come to hear your word taught. And, and I thank you for their desire to follow you more closely and, and to uh, know uh, what purpose you have for their lives. And, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us into uh, your thinking for this time, that uh, you not allow your word to return void, but it would accomplish uh, the purpose for which you sent it this morning. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, do you golf is the question people ask me from time to time. Many times around here, people will say, well, uh, do you golf? <clears throat> and, and I'll say, my, my stock response, those of you who ask me know this, my stock response is, uh, most people that watch me say no. That's not, that's not golf. I don't know what he's doing out there, but that's not golf. And, and, the, and the reason for that is, you know, you know, I've been playing golf for 30 years, probably once or twice a year. And uh, nobody ever invites me twice, it seems. <laughs> but I zigzag down the course. You know, I hit most of the bunkers and, and water holes on the course, and, and usually the way it ends is that I either run out of golf balls or it gets dark, <laughs> one, one or the other. Um, my clubs are so old that I, my, my usual joke is that I, I would have had shoes too, but they didn't sell them at Kmart where I bought my clubs many, many years ago. Well, what's missing in my golf game? Uh, most, uh, for the most part, it's, uh, it's knowledge and, and wisdom about how to play the game of golf. Nobody's ever taught me how to, how to play golf, and so... Um, you know, when I hit a good shot, I don't know why it's good, and I can't replicate it. When I hit a bad shot, I don't, I don't, know, why, I don't know why it went off in the weeds, and, and I can't avoid it the next time. You see, you see, I'm not learning from my experience because I don't know enough about, about golf to do that. There's a body of knowledge around golf like there is about everything else. There's a body of knowledge around golf, and if you know that, then you're in a position uh, to, to improve your, your golf game. I, I don't know those things. So what I need is a, a golf coach, somebody who could help me know uh, which club to use, how to stand, how to swing, how to read greens, those kinds of things that you need to know if you're going to be a, a good golfer. 
Well, you know, many people approach life the same way, it it occurs to me. They zigzag down the, the fairways of life without any understanding as to how to live life effectively. They go from uh, bunker to bunker and, and water hole to water hole. That is from one crisis to another, from one failed relationship to another, from one uh, financial disaster uh, to another, from one addiction to another perhaps, um, from, from one bad experience to another in, in life uh, without ever really um, finding out how to live life effectively. All the while, God is calling us. And he's saying to us, won't, won't you let me help you with that? Won't you let me teach you to live life in a way that is purposeful and satisfying and pleasing to me, a life without regrets? And that's what Proverbs is all about. Uh, Proverbs is what I think of as our, our golf coach for life. The, the, the goal of Proverbs, as Solomon put it, was to help us to live life wisely and, and well. The primary author is, is King Solomon, uh, the wisest man who, who ever lived, and that's according to God. God said in, uh, in 1 Kings 3.12, uh, this is what he said about the wisdom he was going to give Solomon. Solomon was, um, um, was a young king, and so he said, you know, I'm not good at this king stuff. I haven't done any of this. So he said, God, I, I need you to make me wise as, as to how to rule the people. And, and, uh, and God was so pleased with what he'd asked for that he said, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, but I, I'm going to give you Riches and honor as well. So this is what God said about the wisdom he was going to give him. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none, none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. That, that is, uh, Solomon was and is the, the smartest guy in the room. Any room, any time, any place in the world, any time in history. Solomon was the, and is the, the smartest guy in the room. There will never be anyone as wise as Solomon on this earth. And, and uh, we have a description of, of what his wisdom looked like, the kinds of things he knew in 1 Kings 4. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east. And all the wisdom of Egypt, which was known for wisdom at the time. For he was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the, the wall. He also spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You see, God gave Solomon wisdom. He downloaded to him knowledge and wisdom in every area of life, including wisdom about the natural world. Solomon was the leading scientific expert in every field at his uh, point in history. People came from around the world uh, because he was the repository of knowledge about the natural world and, and how things worked in the natural world. And so he shared that knowledge with other people and acquired widespread fame. He also had uh, discernment as to how to make decisions in every area of life. And the purpose that Solomon has for Proverbs is to pass that along. He, he wanted to instill wisdom for living in God's people. And, th- and that's what we read about in Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 1.7, he talks about his purpose for writing Proverbs. And this is it. He says, uh, verses 1 through 7, Proverbs 1, he 
the, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And here, here they are. These are the purposes. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, now this is the core uh, purpose of, uh, or the, what drives uh, Proverbs from Solomon's perspective. He says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, that is the premise that, that drives Proverbs for Solomon. Well, Mark Twain said, a, a smart man learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from everybody else's mistakes. And that's what Solomon's purpose is, to, to try to help us live life in a way to avoid mistakes. So he describes three types of people, and then he describes three types of learning as well. We're going to start with the learning. Uh, the first type is knowledge. And knowledge is uh, correct information about any subject. In, the, in this context, it's, it's correct information about God. Who is God? How does he act? What has he done? Uh, his role as, as creator and sustainer of the universe. His, his role as, as our creator. And who are we in relationship to God? That's what Solomon proposes to tell us as well. And, and then what has God done? And what is his purpose for our lives? How does, he, how does he intend to act in our lives? All that is knowledge, information about God and his role in the world and, and our role with regard to him. And then the second type of learning is, uh, is discretion. And, and, and what we think of as good judgment that is usually developed through, through training and, and experience. It has to do with when, where, and, and how to apply the knowledge that we, that we learn. Uh, for example, in, in my golf game, it would be a judgment as to which club to use. You know, do you use a nine iron or a pitching wedge? Do I use a driver or, or do I need an iron? In, in my case, it probably wouldn't matter what I used. But, but that's an example of, uh, of judgment and, and using judgment to make a decision. And then the third type is wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge and discretion to produce a positive outcome. The application of knowledge and, and discretion or, or sound judgment to produce a positive outcome. Let me illustrate. Uh, some time ago I met with a, a couple uh, who said, uh, Gary, you know, we're having all kinds of conflict. We just can't seem to resolve the conflict in our marriage and, and we have disputes about a number of things. And... Um, I said, well, uh, what's your strategy for resolving those things? How, how, do you, how do you deal with that when you have a difference of opinion over something? They said, well, you know, you know we, we pretty much do what, what we learned from our parents, and that is that we, um, you know, we stand toe-to-toe with each other and, 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 and shout at each other, and they get mad, and we stomp off, and the, the, the underlying issue is unresolved. And so I put on my best Dr. Phil expression, and I said, how's that working for you? And they said, it's not working very well. And that, that's why we came to see you. And, and I, I, so I, I gave them a, I, I showed them, a, explained to them a 10-step kind of a model for resolving conflict, you know, that you can walk through and examine the alternatives and, and work through together and, and then arrive at a, at a resolution without anybody getting mad. You don't have to put Band-Aids on each other after the fact. But the, the underlying issue is resolved to, to everybody's satisfaction and, uh, and nobody gets hurt in the process. You don't damage the relationship. 
in, in the process. Most of us bring expectations and behaviors into our marriages from our families of origin, and we don't even realize it. Some are good and, and uh, constructive. Some are dysfunctional. And, and so this was dysfunctional. But one, once they understood a, a different way to behave in that situation, uh, they were able to, to use uh, judgment as to when to apply that knowledge. And, and then uh, they became wiser as to how they behaved in that particular area of their relationship. And lo and behold, things began to improve. You know, because uh, they didn't feel like they were beating each other up all the time. They were able to resolve some of these underlying issues. That's an example of how knowledge plus discretion or sound judgment uh, results in wisdom. We become wiser as we learn how to apply knowledge in, in life. And that's what Solomon intends for us. So three types of people he describes in Proverbs. The first is the, the simple person. The simple person is not a, not a stupid person. There's a, a difference. A simple person is just untaught. They don't know what they don't know. Some of you know that in a previous career, I was a state trooper many years ago. And back in the late 70s, I was, found myself working the Detroit freeways. In the, uh, in the middle of the night, I was working the Lodge Freeway. And uh, it was dark, obviously, 4 o'clock in the morning. And, and there was a, an, old, uh, an old car that came southbound on the Lodge. And uh, we called it a beater in those days because it was an old beat-up uh, car. And uh, there was an, an older man driving it, but he didn't have his lights on. It was the middle of the night, and uh, it was dark. He didn't have his lights on. So I, I got in behind him, pulled him over, and, and I, I, I said, do you, do you know you're driving without your lights on? He said, well, I, I, I know, officer. I, I'm, I'm sorry. But I, I said, you know, that's very dangerous. You could hit somebody else or somebody could hit you. It's hard to see you without any lights on out here. And he said, I, I know, officer, but he, he said, you know, my electric bill has been so high at my house that I, I thought if I left my lights off that uh, I could save some money. You know, I'm, I wasn't speechless very often. <laughs> but just for a second, I, just for a second, I, I thought, can it really be that he thinks there's a connection? Now, now that's what I mean by simple, you see? He, he, was, he was untaught. He didn't recognize that there was no connection between his car and the electricity in his car and the electricity in his house. And so I went back to the back of the car. I looked at the taillight for a minute and then walked back up to the front and said, it's okay, you've got gas lights on this car. You can leave them on. And he, and he, and he drove away. I didn't write him a ticket because I thought, this guy's got enough trouble. <laughs> That's an example of simple. And, and then there's a, the wise. Solomon tells us, uh, the wise person, they, in, they, they hear an increase in learning. In verse 5, they hear an increase in learning. They're not only able to learn from their own mistakes, but they can take advice from other people as well, can't they? And so they continue to learn over, over time. And, and wisdom often correlates positively with age and experience, doesn't it? Uh, in other words, we, we like to think that as a person becomes older, they also become wiser in, in life. Is that automatically true? No, it's not, is it? Uh, regrettably, it, it's not. It, it isn't automatic. In fact, we had an expression for that within the state police. We used to say some folks had, had um, 25 years of experience, which meant, which meant that they had a lot of experience and wisdom that they could bring to bear in different situations on the job. And then uh, on the other side of that, there was one-year experience 25 times. In, in other words, uh, some people just didn't seem to learn from their experience. They repeated the same mistakes over and over again. So it isn't automatic. Uh, but in general, it correlates with, uh, with age and, ex and experience. And then there is the, the fool. 
According to Solomon, fools despise wisdom and instruction in verse 7. And the primary characteristic of a fool is that they don't listen. They don't listen. They're not teachable. They don't learn. Uh, sometimes our kids don't listen, do they? And uh, the scripture says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And, and uh, that's because uh, children lack experience. They're naive. And so that's why we worry about them as, as parents. They're, they're foolish because they're inexperienced. Uh, but, but fools as adults uh, don't like anybody to tell them what to do. They won't follow instructions. Uh, they, they won't uh, ask for directions. And, and they, they don't pray because they don't want to be dependent on, on anybody else. The context of Proverbs, a, a fool won't acknowledge God or submit to his direction. In fact, in Psalm 14:1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. But Solomon's purpose is to, to teach us to live wisely in a way that pleases God, in a way that, uh, that he can bless. And so his core premise in verse 7 is, The fear of the Lord is the, is the beginning of knowledge. And again, in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 10, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One, that is the knowledge of God, is, is insight, is valuable insight for living life. The point is that any quest for knowledge or wisdom in, about life has to begin with God. That's, that's the place we have to start. Who He is, who we are in relationship to Him, and how He desires to work out His purposes in our lives. And Solomon's a master teacher. He, he knows that we learn most clearly by example. And so the rest of Proverbs is is really, he holds up examples, they're called couplets in a literary sense, but he holds up examples of the wise person versus the foolish person and then talks about what the consequences of each kind of behavior is. Solomon's equipping us to be able to answer, answer a, a single question about life. And, and that single question about everything we say and think and do is simply, is it wise? Is it wise? Is it wise from God's perspective uh, about the way that we propose to, to live life? And so Proverbs is what, what wisdom looks like lived out in the various areas of our, our life. How many are, are, are uh, familiar with the, <clears throat> the movie, 1991 movie with Billy Crystal, City Slickers? Anybody remember that? Yeah. It was a, it was a pretty funny movie. And... Uh, um, in it, you remember, Billy uh, played Mitch. Mitch was one of three guys that, uh, that were looking for meaning and purpose in life. And so the first thing that, uh, that Solomon points us toward is wisdom as to how we pursue God. Well, uh, Mitch and, and, uh, and his crew were looking, at meaning, were looking for meaning and purpose in life as well. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't think about pursuing God. What they were thinking about is finding meaning and, and purpose in life in general, and so they settled on going on a cattle drive, and they met a hard-bitten old uh, trail boss named uh, Curly, played by Jack Palance, and uh, and he was a crusty old guy, and and he told them uh, ultimately when he heard they were looking for meaning and purpose in life, he says, "You got to find the one thing." Remember holding up his finger? You got to find the one thing that'll give you meaning and purpose in life. So Billy is uh, Mitch is hanging on every word that Curly says, but unfortunately. Uh, just, uh, just before he's about to reveal the one thing in life, uh, Curly passes away on the cattle drive, and so Mitch is, is left hanging as to what the one thing is. Well, Solomon doesn't, doesn't leave us hanging. He lets us know that, uh, that the one thing is, is pursuing God as the source of wisdom and knowledge and understanding in life. In Proverbs 2, 1 through 10, 
he describes that, that process to us. What it looks like to pursue God as a, as a single source of knowledge and wisdom in life. Proverbs 2, 1 through 10, verse 1, he says, My son, he's talking as if a father to a son. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hid treasures, you're getting the idea that there has to be some intensity and some effort on our part. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Delivering, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. Uh, truth number one out of this passage is that God is the source of all genuine wisdom, knowledge, and understanding about how to live life. He downloads that protection to us as we pursue a relationship with Him. He promises to teach us by His Holy Spirit. Proverbs one twenty three says, If you turn at my reproof, in other words, if you will listen to me, I will pour out my spirit to you and you and you and you and you, and I, and I will make my words known to you. God says he'll give his wisdom to us. He'll pour out his spirit on us if we'll listen. And not just wisdom about spiritual things, folks, so-called spiritual things in quotes, but he will give us wisdom about every area of life, problems with work, problems with school, problems in relationships, financial issues, future goals. God promises wisdom for all of those things if we will just ask him and then be open to that. Truth number two, the wisdom, knowledge, and understanding God gives protects us from evil. Uh, Let me ask you this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are are you immune from hardship and difficulty in life? No, we aren't, are we? Uh, Bad stuff still happens to good people. Bad stuff still happens to followers of Christ. The difference is that uh, God walks with us through all of it. He delivers us. He delivers us from it. We only endure what God allows and, and what he walks through with us. And that's what we're told in, in Psalm thirty four nineteen. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And, and again in Proverbs, the same story. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, or rises again each time. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, the pastor and author, puts it this way. Put simply, living wisely places us under an invisible umbrella of divine protection. By choosing to pursue wisdom, we we align ourselves with God against foolishness, dishonesty, misconduct, and injustice. He delights to support us when we become part of his agenda. Truth number three, wisdom must be pursued by deliberately cultivating our relationship with God. It doesn't happen just automatically. He says in Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. We, we pursue God by spending time with him each day in his word and in prayer. 
And then there's wisdom in guarding our heart well. The first priority after pursuing God as a source of all wisdom is guarding our heart, guarding what comes into our, our heart. Uh, the Hebrew term for heart here is mentioned 70 times in Proverbs alone, and what it refers to is our inner being, the center of our, our will and our emotions and our decision-making and our, our thinking. It drives what we decide, what we say, what we do, what we think. And that's why Solomon says it's so important that uh, we guard it because everything that we do in life flows out of our heart. The, the uh, Hebrew word for guard here is, uh, uh, pictures a sentry in a, in a watchtower guarding a city so that no threats can come into that city. That, that's the picture. And, and thus the importance of uh, uh, guarding our heart. Question for you. Are you and I deliberate uh, about what we do or, or don't allow into our heart? Are you and I deliberate about what we do or don't allow into our heart? Because what we take in shapes our, our character. It shapes the, uh, the direction that we take either toward God or it pulls us away from God. We're, we're surrounded by a culture that constantly attempts to pull us away from God to disrupt our relationship with God. And Solomon warns us about one of those areas that uh, he warns us repeatedly in Proverbs about one of those areas uh, that tends to pull us away from God, one of those areas we have to guard our heart over. He, he says in Proverbs 7, he speaks of, of the adulterous woman, he calls her, in quotes. The adulterous woman who entices a simple young man, he calls him, on a street corner. This young man is intoxicated with anticipation. But Solomon tells us that the end is, this is how he describes it, he says it's as a bird rushing into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Her house is a highway to the grave uh, leading down to the chambers of death. There's a grim ending to that story. Fast forward to today. That same woman shows up on cable in our movies on our computers. Her seductive message is the same and the outcome of interacting with her is the same. It's, it's death. And it may not always be physical death, but it's death of marriages, death of the marital intimacy that, that God has intended for marriage, death of in- innocence uh, for those uh, children and young people entrapped in that particular temptation, entangled in that. The average age at which a, a boy in our culture is introduced to pornography now is age 11, age 11, you see? So a death to our relationship with God. And, and not that uh, God disowns us or, or that um, he can't save us from that. That isn't it at all. It's, it's that uh, when we become entangled with this kind of a, a temptation, uh, what happens is that we are so weighed down by guilt and shame that we feel alienated from God. We don't reach out to him anymore, even though he's there waiting for us, waiting to restore us again and and heal us from that. Most recently, well, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense and and destroys himself. Most recently, the the, uh, book Fifty Shades of Grey was was the first book to sell over a million copies on Kindle. It was the highest grossing February movie debut in history, 82% of the audience on opening day were female. And 42% of the viewers the first week were less than 25 years old. That's shaping our culture. That's, that's telling young women, this is what a relationship should look like. 
Movie editor Megan Basham observed this in uh, World Magazine, March 7. She says, Among the many mind-bogglingly implausible fantasies, Fifty Shades of Grey sells, the one I think that most accounts for his popularity is the promise that the shame of sexual sin can be alleviated by surrendering to it more fully. God's design for intimacy has been clear from creation. One man, one woman, for life. And and sexual intimacy that we see in our culture is a counterfeit of the marital intimacy that God intended. And it, it eventually robs men and women of the capacity to experience the full gift of physical and emotional intimacy that God designed into marriage at creation. But we lived in a culture where sex is so pervasive, where everything is so sexualized that, that our culture is littered with the victims of this particular temptation. Thirdly, uh, wisdom in investing our finite time here in exchange for a treasure that lasts. All of us have only a certain amount of time, don't we? I don't know. Uh, you seem to, we seem to become more aware of that as we get older. Uh, we can hear the clock ticking more loudly as, as we get older. But the, the average American spends about five hours a day watching TV, and uh, only one in five Americans reads the Bible with any regularity. In, in contrast, Solomon calls us to make God's life-changing teachings a, a priority in our lives. He says this, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light. And correction and instruction are the way to life. And it, the picture here is, is one of immersing ourselves in God's word in such a way that it influences the direction of our, our lives. Jesus cautioned us in Mark 4 about things that will distract us from God as well. He said there are three distractions that will keep us from living lives that will matter to God. In verse 419, uh, chapter 419, he says, number one, the worries of this life. Number two, the deceitfulness of wealth. And number three, the desires for other things. He says those things come in and choke the word, uh, the word of God, that is, making us unfruitful or, or leaving us neutralized for the things of God. You see, Satan doesn't need to destroy us, doesn't he? He just needs to distract us, right? Uh, Through some good things sometimes. But he just needs to distract us from the things of God so that he can neutralize us. Contrast that with uh, some of our uh, Stephen ministry leaders. I met with them recently. As you know, we're implementing Stephen ministry here to to help those who are hurting and going through crisis and uh, and needing somebody to come alongside them. And one of the guys in that ministry uh, said recently, he said, you know, uh, we're going to have to spend two and a half hours every Wednesday night here. That'll mean that I'm, I'm not going to be able to do some other things that I was accustomed to doing. But he said, he said this, this is important. This is what I feel God's calling me to do. And, and so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rearrange my life. And he, you see, uh, he's rearranging his life uh, to use his time uh, to matter in, uh, uh, for eternity, matter, matter in his ministry to others uh, for eternity. How about you? Where are you serving? What portion of your time? We all have jobs. We all have families. We all have obligations. What portion of your time are, are, are you spending in a way that will matter for eternity? And, and do you have a ministry that God is calling you to in that same way? Fourth, ministry and managing our relationships. And managing them in a way that, uh, that honors God. One of those, marriage, one of those relationships is marriage. 
Uh, obviously, there are a lot more than that. But uh, marriage is one Solomon focuses on. He affirms the, the value of the marriage relationship. He says, he who finds a, a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And, and then he shares two perspectives. First of all, he, he gets after the husbands too, but he shares two perspectives on, the, uh, on the, the impact that wives can have on a marriage. He says, first of all, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, I'd have to quickly say that it's no picnic being married to a quarrelsome husband either, is it? Right? And, and maybe the place of your... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spoken by someone who's lived it, right? Yeah. And maybe the place of refuge there is in the basement. I don't, I don't know. But uh, at least he says here that it's better to live in a corner of the housetop. The, the rooftop, they had flat roofs in those days. So apparently the, the male in this situation would hang out on the corner of the roof. Uh, on the other hand, he, he includes a, a, growing, a, a glowing description of the Proverbs 31 wife. He says, in contrast, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. If you haven't read Proverbs 31, there's a great description of a godly wife in there, and uh, this is part of that. She opens her mouth with wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Notice the contrast in the atmosphere that is created uh, by those, those two pictures. And, and here's the, the point that I'd like to leave with you, and that is that, uh, ladies, just be patient with me a moment. Uh, but I, I've seen this before in relationships. I, I just want to caution you that as you relate to your husband in a marriage, that a, a constant barrage of judgment and of criticism will close off communication and will push a husband away. Kindness and affirmation, on the other hand, kindness and affirmation will draw him closer and open up communication. Sometimes we, um, we see so many things that need correction in, in our husbands, and, and, uh, and we want to address them all at once. Well, uh, you know, um, men find that difficult, and we deal with our own sense of inadequacy sometimes. When you, when you criticize us, especially constantly, if, if uh, every time your husband opens his mouth, you have to make a judgment about what he says or, or criticize an idea or something he did. Uh, be prepared for the fact that he won't talk to you much. He'll just close up, retire to his cave, and you won't hear from him much. If you want to open up that communication, again, it's kindness and affirmation. He needs to be looked up to. He needs to be affirmed. He needs to be admired. Let me ask you this question. Are, ladies, are, are, your words, are your words making your house a place your husband wants to come home to? Are your words making your house a place your husband wants to come home to? Now Solomon uh, had some words for husbands as well. He says, uh, Proverbs 16:32, "Whoever is slower is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city." And I think, fellas, our, our error with our wives is more likely to be that, that we will be angry, abrupt and harsh in our communication with our wives, impatient with them, in, in a way that wounds our wives and discourages them and closes off the communication and the emotional intimacy that they need from us. That's the danger for us as guys. That's, that's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. Again, Peter says, Husbands, live in an understanding way with your wives. I wish I could tell you how revolutionary these two uh, directions were in that day and age. 
in, in that Roman culture at the time, women were considered on a, on a level with property. They had no rights. And so when, when Paul and Christianity ushered in an entirely different way of, of viewing women in that culture, and it brought, it brought equality uh, to, to uh, women in that culture. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, we as, as men are called to, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, uh, to give ourselves up for them uh, sacrificially, to put their needs ahead of our own, their needs and desires ahead of our own. And he commands us not just to feel love as an emotion, uh, but he says act in loving ways. That's the connotation of the Greek word. Act in loving ways toward your wife. So my question for you guys is, uh, does your wife feel loved and cherished in your relationship? That's what we're called to do. Does your wife feel loved and cherished in your relationship? Well, Solomon also comments on the difficulty that conflict creates in a, in a household and the reasons for it. He says, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Ongoing conflict in a household can make it a miserable place to live for everybody, can it? And uh, many times uh, the underlying reasons for that relate to pride and, and selfishness. He says, where there's strife, that is conflict, where there's strife, there's pride. But wisdom is found uh, in those who take advice. The, the bottom line is that sometimes don't we find it easier to, uh, or more important to be right or, or to have our own way than to live sacrificially with our partner and put their needs ahead of our own. My advice to young couples when I do premarital counseling is this, that selflessness, that is unselfishness, is the key to a long, satisfying relationship. But selfishness, selfishness is, is the cancer that erodes relationships, that creates a bitterness and, uh, and frustration and resentment over time and ultimately destroys the relationship, the need to have my own way, the need to put my interests and desires ahead of my wife's. That's, that's what will kill our relationship over time. Marriage is not a 50-50 contract, as our culture says. It's not, if, if you do for me, I will do for you. It's, I will love you unconditionally forever, no matter what happens. That, that's the way God views a marriage covenant, not a contract. Now, if your marriage is in trouble, uh, let me assure you that uh, God heals marriages just like he heals broken lives. There is no life that is so broken that God, God's grace does not extend to it. And God redeems and restores individual lives. He redeems and restores marriages. And, and he can make, and I've seen him do it, that, that he can take a marriage that we think is, is lost on a human level, it is beyond all hope, and, and God can restore that marriage. Uh, in, in a way that only he can. And he can make it a satisfying, uh, fulfilling, and a long-term relationship again. Well, what do wisdom and humility look like lived out in any relationship? Uh, Paul tells us in, in Colossians 3, he says, yeah, and, and look at all these descriptors. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now this is something that would be superhuman. On a, uh, on a human level, it can't be done. It's not a do-it-yourself project. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life and you're empowered to live a different kind of a life. We can ask God for that power. He will allow us to live a life like this in our, in our various relationships. Uh, marital generosity is what we're talking about, putting our partner ahead of ourselves. There's some hard research that, imp- that uh, confirms the importance of it. Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia found that marital generosity, simply defined as one partner doing nice things for the other and expecting nothing in return, is one of the greatest contributing factors to happy marriages. Examples are performing small acts of kindness, expressing admiration, expressing respect, forgiving our spouses for something. Long-term relationships, the key. Fifth, wisdom in doing our work with excellence. You know, um, sometimes we compartmentalize our our spiritual lives and we think uh, there's a spiritual life and then it has nothing to do with our work. Uh, But that's not the case. Uh, God uh, views it as all of of one piece. Our our work and the quality of our work is our first and our most important testimony in the workplaces as believers. And and being a a dependable, hardworking employee who produces excellent results is uh, honoring to God. So God cares about our work. He wants to help us do it with wisdom and excellence. And, and so Solomon says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16.3. See, we can ask God for wisdom to plan in, in our secular work, wisdom to plan, insight to solve problems, uh, make decisions, and, and he'll give us that. He'll give us that. He, he, longs, he longs to make us wise in those areas. God will give us favor and effectiveness in our interpersonal relationships at work. If we ask, Solomon says again, when a, man's ple- when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You see, God can give us favor with people that don't like us, and he can change their opinion about us, and he can smooth over the problems with interpersonal relationships because he can work in people's hearts from the inside out. The scripture is full of it. God will also give us wisdom as to what to say and and when to say it. Solomon tells us, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Every salesman knows that there is a time to stop talking as well, right? And that's what Solomon tells us. And then six, and and finally, uh, Solomon offers us practical wisdom in accumulating and stewarding our finances. First of all, he says, Uh, Get a job that fits you and and work hard at it. Uh, Hard work is a part of it. He says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Our our culture would tell us that we need to, in order to become wealthy, we need to to hit the lotto or or to, to have a big inheritance or go to the casino. But what he says is, save money and avoid debt. Save money and avoid debt. You all knew that, didn't you? Uh, Dishonest money dwindles away, he says, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. And and then about debt, he says, the the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. So he's telling us to avoid debt. In the 1996 book, The Millionaire Next Door, the the authors borrow from Solomon. Uh, They say that uh, most millionaires become wealthy not because they get a big big inheritance or or hit a dot-com just right, or uh, because they hit the lotto. But they become millionaires by simply um, live below their means. They, they live below their means. They save their money. They avoid debt. They drive used cars. They live in a, a house smaller than what they can actually afford. They invest wisely over a long time. In other words, 
Same thing Solomon said. Gather little by little and make it grow. And then principle number three, honoring God by giving back to him the first part of your income. Um, Honor the Lord with your wealth, he says, and with the first fruits of all you produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What he's saying is give back to God first and then God, God will reward you for that. Not just an Old Testament idea. Jesus made us the same promise. In Luke 6, 38, he says, Given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus said, remember, he said, lay up. He said, don't worry about what you have down here. He said, lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven. Send it on ahead, in, in other words. And, and Gene and I have found over the years that, that that works. That when we set aside money for God up front, that, that he... Uh, rewards us, and and he blesses us beyond what we uh, had anticipated, and he provides for all our needs. But what he's he's asking uh, for many of us is that we trust him in that. Um, God rewards, and he honors and rewards our generosity with our money. He says explicitly here, Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. He considers it a personal favor, in other words, and and he will repay him for his deed. God will pay you back. God's generosity with us is linked to our generosity with others. And here's the uh, capper. He says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. It, it defies logic, doesn't it? Another withholds what he should give and only suffers. Only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and, and one who waters will himself be watered. Couldn't be any clearer. Couldn't be any clearer, could it? Let me ask you one question. Could it be that many of us are living paycheck to paycheck because we simply have not honored God by giving him the first part? And he's waiting until we do. He's waiting until we trust him enough to do that in order to bless us. Well, how do you pursue wisdom in closing? uh, First of all, schedule a a daily quiet time. Schedule time in the scripture every day where, where you spend a little time in God's word and a little time in prayer Write down what you learn from him every day. And then, number two, simply ask God to make you wise. He promises us if if we ask for wisdom, he'll give us that. He says, if if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That is a promise that you you can claim and depend on. And, And then hang out with wise people. Solomon tells us, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm in Proverbs 13.20. And then uh, one, one good way to do that here at uh, New Hope is the men's study, the women's study. We're all pursuing God's wisdom together, learning how to live wisely. And then remain teachable. He says, finally, do not reprove a, do not reprove a scoffer. A scoffer is a cynical kind of a fool. Uh, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a, reprove, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will, still, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So remain teachable. Well, what's the legacy of a life lived wisely? Uh, Solomon gives us both a, a game plan or a strategy, and then he tells us what the result will be. He says, this is your game plan, your strategy. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, that is, in every area of your life, acknowledge God as God and give him that part of your life. 
In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. That is, he will go ahead of you to give you favor and make you successful in that area of your life. He will give you the wisdom you need uh, to to live wisely and well in, in life. And this is the result. That the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. God uh, longs to, to help us to live wisely and well. Let's take him up on that. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, I thank you for these folks and their desire to know you and, and to walk with you wisely in this life. Uh, we'd ask that you make us attentive to your Holy Spirit's leading, that, that you teach us how to do just that. And uh, we thank you for the great gift of your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. We ask that uh, you'd make it so that we would reflect his character as we go out into the world uh, from day to day. And and, uh, all these things we pray in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.